Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. I am joined by newly minted professional bodybuilder, WNBF professional bodybuilder, Eric Helms today. Oh, oh sorry. He's, he's, he's got the medal. I don't know how this got in my hands. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I wasn't prepared for this. I, I never am. No, thank you very much, man. It's an honor to be on. So Yes. I, I have to say, when I looked up the, the organization that you got ProCard with, mm. my brain kept wanting to reorganize the acronym into BDNF. And I'm like, no, that's not it. I know my brain wants that, but no, it's that's not the acronym. Well, I tell you what, I sure had a lot of BDNF going on after the the competition. I bet you so did. I'm still trying to make sense of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was a very cool experience. And I have been actively competing to try to get pro status with this specific organization since 2009. And way back in the days when Barnes and Nobles and Borders were places where you'd go to get books instead of just on your phone. And when books were things you could hold with your hands, as you, you have these relics behind you, as a 40-year-old yes. man, I, I also <laughs> remember these well. I used to see right next to Flex Magazine, where, let's just say they're in a, a different category of bodybuilding, mm -hmm. Formula One racing versus a bicycle. Right next to it, you have Natural Bodybuilding and Fitness Magazine. And on the cover was guys like Jim Cordova, Dave Gooden, kind of the legends of the late 90s, mid-2000s when I first got into bodybuilding, and I thought, oh, man, that'd be so cool to be on that magazine cover. Well, the magazine's gone, but the dream never died. Sure. And, and yeah, so I've been, this is my fifth competitive season. I turned 40 this year. My first season was in 07. My first season competing with INBF, WNBF was 09. And I have placed second, second <clears> to the <throat> overall winner. Won shows that weren't quite big enough to be pro qualifiers. And even won a pro qualifier earlier this year where a panel decided that my physique was not quite yet pro caliber yet based upon international rules for New Zealand as a startup organization here locally. So to say that this is something that I've been building towards is one of the larger understatements of my own life. So it means a lot to me. That's something I've been working towards for a long time. So I appreciate your acknowledgement there. Yeah. Well, it also highlights just the type of guest that I try to get on the show because you are a career-long academic, you know, mm. so you have the hardcore academic, academic pedigree, you are a professor, and yet you never stopped practicing your craft and the art and the science and blending them. So you're doing the research, you're teaching future professionals while you do the research. Oh, and by the way, you're still on this journey of applying it all. And that's exactly who we want. So very happy to see that, that that happened. I'm happy to definitely get you on the show. So other than the pro card, why don't you go ahead and tell the, tell the listener just what you have done sure. academically, professionally, and then what you're currently doing now? Yeah, so half the degrees behind me are my wife. So that's the facade, as is the statement that I'm a professor. I actually, actually, this has been a big year for me. I just got promoted from research fellow to senior research fellow literally oh, okay. this week. So okay. I got back from 
Australia and I got an awesome email. I'm like, man, this just this is a, it's a good year. This it's all is, turning up helms. Yeah. I turned 40, but they're making me feel better about it. So yeah, no, it's been really cool. So I started as just a bodybuilder and um, as much as people sometimes, depending upon what they engage with me online with, whether I'm doing science communication or whether I'm teaching a more practical course or whether they see me coaching, I started as an athlete moved into being a personal trainer, well, as a personal trainer and athlete, moved into becoming specifically what I would describe as a sports coach, if you are willing to call strength, sport, and physique competitions sports, <laughs> yeah. which I am. And then from there, moved into being a sports scientist and science communicator. But I just never let go of any of them. I just kept collecting them all and stacking them together and shifting my priorities around. So I, I mentioned my kind of co competitive arc. I started as a personal trainer in 2005. And I did that until 3DMJ, 3D Muscle Journey, our coaching business, became big enough to sustain me just as doing coaching, which for strength sport and physique sport in the modern era, that's online. So it's a lot of exactly what we're doing, but one-on-one -on -one with clients and going to shows. So I have had the privilege of coaching and I still coach at a relatively high level and also with very novice athletes. I don't do a full, I'm not a full-time coach anymore at my peak. I was coaching 40 athletes at any given time. Now mm -hmm. it's like four, but I, yeah. I never want to step away from it fully because I really enjoy it. But I've had the privilege of being on national teams at IPF Worlds. That's powerlifting. I competed at the first, in, I'm sorry, I did not compete. I'm not that good at powerlifting. I coached <laughs> at the first inaugural Sheffield, which just happened. I was working with Team Canada and Jess Bittner. I've coached at three IPF Worlds, Jess Bittner once, and then Bryce Lewis twice. And I've worked with various national champions. And I've also coached at WNBF Worlds, where I'm going to be competing for the first time with various women and men's bodybuilders over the years, all the way yep. to my first world was 2014. And I've uh, coached there 2019 and other times. So I coach, and that was an evolution from training. And uh, at some point, I realized that the biggest contribution I could have to our community and also the 3D muscle journey was to ensure that we were staying up to date with evidence-based practice and making sure that I could support our coaches with my, I'll say my intellectual muscle, mm -hmm. which I think is probably more impressive in many ways than my actual muscle. And also I found that I could communicate concepts that were relatively complex in simple way that were directly applied, even though they started in kind of obscure, complex terminology. So I really kind of doubled down on that. And in 2012, my wife and I moved to New Zealand, where I did my research-based master's after my professional master's, which I did in the States. And then I went on to actually do my PhD. And then I loved it so much out here at the Auckland University of Technology, specifically in the Sports Performance Research Institute in New Zealand. In 2017, before I graduated with my PhD, they picked me up as a research fellow, which is something I do part-time, but all of that part-time is dedicated to stuff where that really gets my juices flowing. So it's primarily mentoring master's and PhD students. I do a little bit of guest lecturing at some of the graduate and postgraduate courses mm -hmm. uh, on like auto-regulation of training and nutrition. But for the most part, what I'm doing is paying it forward to people who are in the same position as me, who want to move their life to New Zealand and study strength and physique sports science with me and do nerdy muscle stuff. And believe it or not, I've actually been doing that for six years. Like I said, just got promoted. Yeah. And I've had several PhDs actually graduate and a slew of masters. And they're all doing cool stuff, looking at cutting for strength sport, 
looking at manipulating velocity-based training without actually using velocity trackers to enhance strength gains, looking at correlations between successful weight loss maintenance versus just weight loss. Um, how do we enhance performance on a strength day by priming it or allowing for recovery and microcycle construction? The effect of stretching on powerlifting performance. These are all theses that hey, I didn't even think were possible 15 years ago. You kind of yeah. shoehorn something into it. But now like people come to New Zealand and I'm not the only location this occurs now. You got like Brad Schoenfeld, you got Grant Tinsley, yep. you got Mike Zerdos, you got Bill Campbell. But people come out to New Zealand, which I'm hugely honored for because I know how hard it is to move out here. And we go to Hobbiton and then we go to the, the strength conditioning lab <laughs> and we do cool stuff, man. So I could not be more blessed. Yeah. Um, I've been here for that long. And along the way, I also wrote some books and started monthly applications in strength sport now that we just call Mass Research Review which where we actually take studies, myself, Dr. Eric Schrexler, Dr. Mike Zerdos, and soon to be Dr. Lauren Colenzo-Semple. And we translate that into practice for practitioners, athletes, trainers, and just the super keen weekend warriors and, and recreational yeah. lifters. Yeah. Um, definitely one of the best resources out there. I mean, I've been a subscriber for a while. It's been essential as far as just like, for me staying up to date, especially in my role as an editor mm. now. Like I do need to stay up on this stuff. So yeah. mass examine, like they're critical for me, given my, the breadth of things that I have to be knowledgeable about, like knowledgeable enough that if something's wrong in the manuscripts that I'm editing, I, it's my job to call it out. Yes. You know, so those types of resources are so essential for me. So if you're not a subscriber to mass, if you, if you this is the first time you're hearing about it, definitely go check it out. And of course, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But Eric, as far as your research and the things you've published goes, and we don't have to spend too much time on this, but you actually came on my radar through autoregulation. That's mm. how I first got, got to your name because you, and correct me if I'm mistaken, but release either articles or papers on APRE and the application of the APRE um, system or the, the, the met that method of autoregulation. I applied that a lot with my collegiate athlete because I was coaching in charge of 300 athletes and I'm trying to make sure that they're progressing at the appropriate mm -hmm. rate or things like that. Cause I have a very, these very short windows of time they're with me. So I wanted to maximize their progress as much as I could. So you've done some autoregulation and then I guess in general, where has the rest of your research or the things you've published focused on? Great question. Yeah. So shout out to Brian Mann, Dr. Brian Mann, who, mm, for sure, who, who kind of, yeah, he, and he did, he published the first paper on autoregulatory progressive resistance exercise or APRE. And then where that actually came from for the real OG SNC practitioners, the book we all say we have that no one reads or understands. <laughs> Super training. Yes. <laughs> where a version of APRE exists, which then Brian kind of tested empirically. And my PhD was specifically on autoregulation for powerlifting. And to, to do that, to talk about that, you have to kind of build your theoretical framework for where did autoregulation come from? What is it? And if you type in resistance training and autoregulation in the Google Scholar, you're going to find, especially if you did it back when I started in 2014 on my PhD, 2013, you're going to find Brian Mann's paper. And it starts the framework of what even is autoregulation and what are we trying to do? And it's individualizing things in real time based upon performance or recovery or biofeedback of some type to hopefully get better performance recovery or 
better individualized outcomes in the long run, right? Um, but I think the primary inspiration for my PhD work was Mike Tushir, who mm. is a relatively prolific uh, coach in the powerlifting space, also a World Games gold medalist. Another, uh, I, I wouldn't call him a pracademic because he's not actually in the academic space, but he has been just as influential as a coach, if not more so, in a thinker than he has as an athlete, even though he's one of the few Americans to have actually taken gold at the World Games in powerlifting. Good friend of mine. And mm. someone who essentially gave me the support and endorsement that, hey, go do your PhD on my system and let's see what we can learn from it. And I was kind of the second generation of people interested in doing that. Dr. Mike Zerdos at Florida Atlantic University started being interested in this. And he's also close friends with Mike, Mike T. Mike yep. Z, Dr. Zerdos, basically did his PhD also on powerlifting. He did yep. it on a daily undulating format to maximize strength performance. And he has been doing amazing work and he's become a collaborator and very close friend of mine in many ways since I met him in 2013, actually at one of Mike T's conferences in Australia. Oh, nice. So yeah, the, the connections run deep. And so I have kind of two big arms of my research for my master's. I specifically looked at protein manipulation uh, in dieting strength athletes and bodybuilders, basically. Um, and my thesis was all ri written around the idea of um, how do we preserve as much muscle mass as possible while trying to lose fat mass? And it was directly on the topic of uh, informing bodybuilding. I even have bodybuilders in my thesis title, which I'm very proud of. And then my PhD has powerlifting in the title, oh, which man. I'm very proud of. So <laughs> I quite literally decided to come out to New Zealand and I wanted to bring the lens that say a rugby coach who goes back to school or an SNC coach or track and field who goes back to school and gets their PhD and says, look, I want to study sports science. And I go, all right, I want to apply that because it's never been like there's not officially as someone gone and studied physique and strength sports science. So when people ask me my research focus, it's they're often like, oh, are you more nutrition or training? And I am obviously both, but right. I think a better description, because I have huge holes in both of those areas, if you compare me to an exercise physiologist or, say, a nutritional science PhD, is that I'm a physique and strength sport scientist. So because of the nature of strength sport and physique sport, I have a ton of overlap into various areas, even including yep. stuff that is not in nutrition or training, like coaching psychology and some other things like that. But... Yeah, if you were to be like, so talk to me about my brother, he wants to do a marathon, I would be giving you similar information to what I'm, what I would learn in a textbook because I've, I've never done it. Yeah. Or if you wanted to know, hey, can you do a graded exercise test? I'm like, oh God, I haven't done like a VO2 max since I was an undergrad. Right. So, so yeah. the, the bread and I'm butter of exercise physiology or nutritional science um, is absent. Um, although because I do coach and inform and think all the time and my whole life is is related to strength and physique sport i have a ton of very specialized knowledge there and if you look at my publication record like i have evidence-based recommendations for natural bodybuilding contest prep and multiple yep. iterations of that and recent reviews coming out on how to monitor and, and, and regulate resistance training so it's very focused but i think the best way to characterize my research is that and then if you want to get real nitty-gritty i have a, a intense level of knowledge because I did a degree in it in protein and during weight loss as well as auto-regulating resistance training for strength. Awesome. Well, one huge aspect of physique strength sports is hypertrophy. And mm. 
I mean, I don't think you could have illustrated any better why you're a good person to bring on for this topic is just with the, all the things that you've done and the things that you've experienced and um, with hypertrophy being so essential to to those sports and those goals. Something I've wondered about, you know, I've been training now for over, over 20 years. You know, you, I, I have a path arc like most. You, you start in the early days. You start with, you start with T-Nation. You get to the grad school years and then you're kind of hardcore research. What does that show? And all that kind of stuff. But I still was a very, I still experimented a lot in my training. Mm -hmm. And so throughout those years, I, I just had Bill Willis on who, who, who wasn't his episodes not out yet, but we reminisced about our mountain dog training days, the John Meadows years. All right. uh, Yes. 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 He's to, to the legend, but he employs a lot of like different techniques for the goal of hypertrophy. He was a you know massive drop set advocate, even like getting into altering the order of exercises to maximize, you know, hypertrophy of different muscle groups, pre-fatigue, post-fatigue. Like he did it all, slow eccentrics. He did everything. And I still to this day, and it probably is because I just haven't had time to just really dig into the research and I haven't, I always just have wondered, what do we know about these methods? What do we know about if we employ these methods, drop sets, extended sets, pre-post fatigue type sets, are they truly more advantageous than traditional sets and reps and increasing tangible, calculable volume over time? So I guess what I'll do to turn over to you is we can maybe start with like hypertrophy in general like the like overview high level bird's eye view of what drives hypertrophy and then get into the variables that improve it or that will lead to increases in hypertrophy from a training perspective and then we can dive into the actual methods and where they fit hey everyone before we continue with the episode i want to let you know how you can get 25 percent off some of the top supplement brands in the market this includes brands like Thorn, Designs for Health, Designs for Sport, Clean, Nordic Naturals, and more. You can do this through creating a free account on Fullscript.com. Here's the cool thing about Fullscript. They have their own vetting process when it comes to all the supplements uh, on their website. So any company that wants to sell their products must prove to Fullscript that they have the highest quality manufacturing practices and protocols in place. When you go to the link in the show notes, you can create a completely free account and have access to all of Fullscript's supplements that they offer. You will also be able to see specific supplements that I recommend that I personally have vetted and I like their formulations. So again, go to the show notes, click on the Fullscript link, and you can make a free account. Thanks so much and enjoy the rest of the episode. Sounds great. Yeah. So high level, when we're talking about generating hypertrophy, it comes down to providing a tension stimulus of the local muscle muscular level. What the heck does tension mean? And it's, well, it's essentially sensed by mechanosensors in muscle fibers that there's many, there's a five plus that I can think of right now off the top of my head. That's definitely not all of them. And we don't even know how they all sense it, nor necessarily what all of their downstream signaling pathways are to induce hypertrophy. But nonetheless, this is something that occurs at the fiber level. 
not necessarily at the whole muscle level. So yeah, you could measure at the tension and you would, so you could measure tension at the tendon, which is just basically force and you would see it scaling with higher loads. Uh, but we know it's not just the load on the bar that's, that's inducing hypertrophy because we see similar hypertrophy when we look at sets of say 20 or sets of five on a set per set basis, so long as they're at a similar proximity to failure and similar exercises. So these sensing mechanisms are at the fiber level. They typically are in the extracellular matrix or within the actual contractile unit itself, the smallest portion, uh, functional portion of, of muscle. We're talking the sarcomere. And this is something uh, that is important to understand so that you can see how it connects to the, the variables that we're going to talk about. And that's where it all starts. Every, every other secondary potential postulated mechanism going all the way back to the 70s and 80s occurs after attention stimulus is there. You're not going to produce metabolic stress in any way that actually potentially enhances hypertrophy unless you're producing tension, right? You're not going to produce muscle damage unless you've done sufficient work at a high tension that includes potentially eccentrics, but not exclusively, or at least the long muscle lengths, which also increases tension, right? And if you don't have enough of that metabolic response, and if you don't have there to be damage to repair, there's not going to be the autocomparicon response and the hormonal response that is also postulated to maybe enhance or have an additive effect on hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. So when it really comes down to it, it's progressive tension overload, if you, if you want to use some relatively accurate terminology. And I don't think most practitioners are benefited from talking about the specific cellular mechanisms of hypertrophy, because then they do dumb things, in my opinion. And that's a little harsh, but like, let's go back to 2010. Schoenfeld's paper comes out, yep. great paper. Yep. And we got, oh, we got damage, metabolic stress, and we got tension. And our human monkey brains go, right, we have three things. Stools stand up with equal legs, so I need to have a damage set, I need to have a metabolic stress set, and I need to have a tension set. So I'm going to lift heavy, and then I'm going to do overload eccentrics, and then I'm going to do a burnout and hashtag science. And that's just not the way that works at all. And it is basically skipping multiple chains of, of what is actually supposed to occur in research, where we get a theoretical understanding that why would it be equal parts of all three? And they haven't necessarily each been empirically tested to the point where we understand how they influence hypertrophy. Is it additive, correlational, and they just kind of overlap and have it at the same time? Like mm -hmm. you figure out how you want to do progressive resistance training and not cause muscle damage, uh, then we can sure. actually experimentally isolate it, but we can't. Um, right. You figure out how to do progressive resistance exercise and not cause any metabolic stress and same thing, right? So where we're at today, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And more importantly for the practitioner, we want to think about which variables are associated with greater muscle growth. And that's where I start most conversations with people because that's what matters. And they right. make poor decisions when they focus on mechanisms without any connection to practice. So okay. thinking about just understanding research, generally yep. what you do is you try to get the best understanding of the mechanism. That's your bench research or your basic research. Then you move into applied or translational research, which is you base something applied off it that is similar to what's done in practice. And then you pass the baton on the practitioners. They try it out. And then ideally, it comes full circle. And this is a collaborative process where the practitioner says, yeah, we don't really do that because it just doesn't seem to work. And we go, okay, why is that? So we survey them. We do qualitative interviews. We do mixed methods. And then we feed that back in and we update our models and test it again. So a lot of the research I do is not getting in the labs and arguing about bro science is stupid with people. It is sitting down and interviewing bodybuilders, powerlifters, coaches, and 
then going, what do you do? What seems to work? And then we figure out potentially why and drill down to a mechanism so we can better manipulate that if it's something that does seem to work under controlled conditions. So it's a very different paradigm than what you see on the internet or what you might have saw 15 years ago of it's like these two camps, like is it experience versus science? Since you've already failed because those are both very <laughs> useful things. Right. So anyway, um, at a high level, what we've come to understand about hypertrophy and the reason why we see so many different bodybuilders and strength athletes who are huge and jacked doing very seemingly dissimilar things is that they're getting the same things right. And the two key variables that you are actually going to put down in your program that seem to induce hypertrophy are is proximity to failure being sufficiently quote unquote hard or intense. And then the total amount of work you're doing, which is probably most simply quantified as the number of those hard enough sets performed per muscle group in a given time period. And now we have multiple meta-analyses that have confirmed that there seems to be a dose response, not a linear dose response, and not a forever dose response. It mm. probably does drop off at some point. And the number of sets you perform in a week for a given muscle group and hypertrophy, and a meta-regression that's a preprint but not quite out yet by Robinson and colleagues, showing that there is a relationship as you get closer to failure, there's a general positive slope towards greater hypertrophy. But there's a lot of caveats in those two things. For one, sure. where you fit on that bell curve is very unique. So you could be someone who, even though the meta-analyses suggest somewhere between 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week is a good idea for volume. If you're not informed by your prior data and you don't have 20 years of experience like you do, Corey, if, we, if I sat down to write a program for you, I wouldn't be like, now what I'd like you to do is tell me nothing about your 20 years of history and just do what this <laughs> meta-analysis says, right? Yeah. Because I got 300 people and I want to know what the average response is. No, I want to know your response, right? Mm. So the big thing to understand is that these are blind individual differences. And we have data showing that there's plenty of people out there who get better response doing eight sets versus 16. So they just aren't represented by the, by the bell curve because that's why it's a bell curve, right? Right. <laughs> and then, uh, and likewise, then we have to apply these concepts, the one in isolation, back into a big picture interdependent model. And some cool stuff about that meta regression I mentioned is, okay, yeah, sure, that's a positive slope between getting closer to failure and greater hypertrophy. But it's moderated by a lot of things. You chuck 80% of 1RM on the bar, roughly or 8RM or heavier, and now that relationship is no longer meaningful and potentially goes away completely. So, okay, what's going on there? Well, if you start a set of eight, you're already pretty close to failure and you pretty much have to recruit everything and there's a high level of tension from the word jump. So, okay, cool. So I could actually do a set of five because we have other data showing that lasts roughly long enough to be on similar footing to a longer uh, lasting set of say eight to 12 reps or 12 to 15, maybe even a set of four if you look at Mangene's study. And hmm. stop at maybe three reps from failure, and I get a similar effect to doing 20 reps all the way to failure. Okay, but then when should I do 20 reps? When should I do five reps? What's a good exercise pairing? And what's not, right? Well, okay, if getting to failure is important, and I'm just giving some examples here, Corey. Sure. Yep. Then, okay, I want to make sure that's muscular failure. And we have data by Halperin, another meta analysis that suggests that when you do more than 12 reps, People are a little less accurate at gauging proximity to failure, right? And we have other data showing that when you do large multi-joint movements that produce a lot of metabolic cost, training a lot of muscular at the same time, and you take those to failure, discomfort is higher and session RPE is higher. 
And discomfort can easily mask proximity to failure like your repetitions in reserve. So if I want to do squats and I want to do 20 reps to failure, that's probably a bad choice because it's going to make the workout unnecessarily hard. But I could do a set of five at a three RIR. That's hard. That's challenging. But I'll be ready to rock when I jump on leg press or leg extension afterwards. And I probably don't want to do heavy sets of five on leg extension because I'm 40. And I have knees that I like, right? So, <laughs> so maybe I choose a lower load there. So it's these kind of practical questions where you merge these two worlds. And ultimately, when we come back to it, anytime we assess one of these advanced quote-unquote techniques, we're looking at, all right, are we producing muscular tension locally? And is that tension getting us close enough to the point where we're training quote-unquote hard enough near failure? And is that failure occurring for muscular reasons rather than cardiometabolic reasons or the mm. perception of failure due to high levels of global discomfort because of metabolic output, cardiovascular fatigue, et cetera. And then is the set lasting long enough to actually produce tension? So it's not like a set of three or two, which we see is not on the same footing as, as mm-hmm. moderate rep sets. And also there's some data suggesting you actually can go too light. So there's a study by Lassavicius where they compared 20, 40, 60 and 80% of 1RM sets near to failure. It's actually a little bit less growth on the 20%. Probably because it's really hard to tell when you're close to failure when you're doing 80 reps and that might as well be cardio at that point. Like, like literally. Right. Not, not yep. the powers are joking Oof. about doing cardio instead of 10, mm-hmm. but like that set took like, four minutes. Yeah, yeah right. So mm. I want to go back to tension for just a little bit. Sure. Because this is something that I don't know if I fully understand yet, and I think there's a lot of people who don't fully understand. It is not fully understood yet, which is also an important point. Okay. Well, your comment about like the sets, I think if I sets of like two or three, which we're assuming, I'm assuming that we're talking like loads of like 90% on the bar, 90% of one RM. Yeah, there's a, there's two studies which inform this, right? Okay. Most directly. There's a study by Schoenfeld where they compared two to four RM. So they actually just tested what their 3RM was and made, mm-hmm. they tried to train close to that and compared that to 8 to 12RM with the same number of sets. So three in each group training like three days per week. Similar study, but a few more variables uncontrolled. Mangine and colleagues compared a 3 to 5RM, so average 4RM there compared to 8 to 12. But there was shorter rest intervals in the 8 to 12 group. So there's a little more mm-hmm. of a protocol comparison. Mm-hmm. And... In Schoenfeld's study, there was greater hypertrophy in the group that did 8 to 12 compared to the 2 to 4 IM. Mangene, it was roughly comparable for the most part with leaning in favor of the 3 to 5 RM group. So it means that sets need, like if you're going to go heavy, it can't be so heavy that the set doesn't last long enough to provide a sufficient stimulus to a lot of those contributing muscles. So Henman's size principle, we'll go bring it all the way back and this helps to inform our understanding of tension. This is the idea that Motor units are recruited in order of preference and need and how much force or power they can produce. And that when they're turned on, they turn everything on. It's all or nothing and it's in order. So that means if we're going to pick up a pencil, we're only going to, we're not going to turn on our biggest high threshold motor units unless you're going to pick up the pencil as fast as possible. Right. <laughs> yep. Unless you think that pencil is a hundred pounds and it turns exactly. out to be the weight of a pencil. Right. Or you want to just pick it up <laughs> with like, like, like Bruce Lee fast, right? Yeah, right. They're, they're going to twitch on for a second. Or you pick up the pencil like, oh, somebody made this with neutron star material. Okay, that's pretty yep. heavy. Um, exactly, right? And But if you pick up that pencil until you can barely move it and you start fatiguing some of those fibers, 
what we see is what we think we see is what's called motor unit cycling. So as some fibers fatigue, they drop out and other ones come in. And then eventually those are going to fatigue because they're not meant to be turned on for long periods of time. They're high threshold motor units. They produce high power, but they also fatigue quick, right? Mm -hmm. But when you pick up something heavy, everything turns on immediately. And that's somewhere in the range of 80, 90% of 1RM or like 8 to 10RM, 6 to 10RM. It's probably individual, depends on the movement, et cetera. Sure. But heavy enough, right? Mm -hmm. Now, when you do that, could you just do one rep and have it count? Well, probably not, because for the same reason there's high threshold motor units and motor unit cycling happens, there's going to be some fibers that are much more, diff- like they're able to not be too easily fatigued. So, so they need enough time to actually mm. get a stimulus. And when you do a heavy set of five, the bar or the implement or whatever is going to be moving slower from the get than you're going to have for a set of 10. So the length of time of a set of 10 to failure and a set of five to failure is not as different as people think, because each individual rep is slower on that set of five. So what eventually shakes out is you kind of see, well, somewhere in that like four to six rep range is probably the heaviest you generally go if you want that set to be equivalent from a hypertrophy perspective to other sets for the reasons discussed. But you don't necessarily need to make sure that every single set is on equal footing. You could do another set if you really want to train for strength and size at the same time, but you're going to do another set. So there's a fatigue cost, right? And then on the other side of it, yes, hypothetically, a set of 40 can produce just as much stimulus, well, you got to make sure that set of 40 is actually close to failure, which is very hard to do and feels terrible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So how does our, I guess, more recent understanding of tension marry up or change the old, like the concept of time under tension? Great question. Yes. I see those get basically used interchangeably. And I'm not sure they should. They absolutely should not be. So I think what is a useful concept here is a, a biomechanics term of, of impulse. And that's just uh, the, the force time integral. So it's the area under the curve if you're actually looking at like a force plate signature. So it is not only the magnitude of force, but how much time you're spent producing it. And I would argue that the area under the curve is what matters. So it's not only the peak force, but also how much time and how much total force is being applied. So when you st- only think about the time under tension, you can do things that would result in less impulse, right? Mm-hmm. So if you go, right, hey, man, time under tension is important. Each set should last a minute. So let's put on a really light load and pace myself. You're actually reducing the peak to get a longer integral over time. And you might not actually be that close to failure at any given point in that set until like the very end, right? Mm-hmm. So... And we see in studies on like ultra slow training, there's a reasonable amount of slowness you can go to if you're going close to failure where it doesn't impede gains. Say a four second eccentric, one second pause, two second concentric. That's, I probably would not go any slower than that. And there's going to be some times where that will impede things. But when you look at like super slow training, it consistently produces less hypertrophy than quote unquote normal tempos. And the way to think of this is that you are stronger eccentrically than you are concentrically. So if you're training for hypertrophy and you're wanting to get more of the tension placed on the contractile element, not that passive, passive force production doesn't dissipate and transfer throughout the muscle, and that's probably just fine. But there's an argument for controlling the eccentric, just making sure I would, the way I say it to people is make sure that gravity is not doing the eccentric, but you're controlling uh-huh. it way down. Uh-huh. So you're getting all the volume. And then lifting as forcefully as you can on the concentric, not trying to, to control necessarily 
the tempo. Load dictates concentric speed, and your ability to control that load, not gravity, dictates eccentric speed. And that takes care of everything else, because if you're lifting heavy enough, then you're maximizing the height of impulse rather than the length. And if you're lifting light, you're still trying to move that bar quickly, and it will move quickly, but eventually it'll start to taper off as you fatigue, and force production goes down. So people focusing on time under tension, they might be, sometimes they think that's the mechanism of why it's working. Like, oh, I did a drop set and I spent more time lifting. And it's like, well, you got more contractions in a fatigued state that required you to recruit other fibers and you got them closer to failure and you produce tension on those fibers from a drop set. But that's also what happens if you just do a high rip set to failure. Right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the tempo thing because the other thing I, I my mind goes to is how the reps are being done mm-hmm. in these sets matters too, probably. Because another thing I've heard is with regards to tension is to almost slow down that concentric portion due to the increased perception of tension. And so that's not exactly what we're talking about with regard to tension the type of tension that will drive hypertrophy. Absolutely. Yeah. So muscle forces go down if you purposely slow your concentric. And when muscle forces are higher, muscle force, you mean if you're standing on a force plate and you squat and you try to slow down the concentric, the force plate's going to be lower. That means your quads are producing less force, which means there's less tension being sensed. So ultimately, you there's never really an argument for purposely slowing down the concentric, in my opinion. And indeed, when you look at some of the velocity-based training and data on that, you start to see proximity to failure is not quite as important. You need some fatigue, but if there's like a 20% slowdown, which gets you maybe to a three to two, two to five RIR, depending upon the load on the bar, you're getting a comparable amount of hypertrophy to taking it to failure. Right. But in all velocity-based training studies, you are consistently motivated to lift the bar as fast as possible, yep. putting yep. out maximum concentric force. But when you look at studies where they just compare, hey, you do a set of 10 with 75% of 1RM, and you do two sets of 5 with 75% of 1RM, sometimes you see better hypertrophy in the group that is going close to failure because they're probably not being motivated, nor are they uh, thinking to lift it as forcefully as possible. You can see that in some of the meta-analyses on cluster sets and rest redistribution sets. They lean a little bit away from hypertrophy being quite as ideal because you're basically uh, doing the same total work, but you're reducing RIR. And that's also what that meta-regression found by Robinson is that, yeah, even when you control for volume, yeah, the relationship gets a little bit less, but it's still meaningful. So volume and proximity to failure are, which is essentially impulse. We're (laughs) talking about it again, if we think about it, is what matters. And that's why I think it's most useful just to think about it from that perspective. Doing enough work and making sure that work is going to actually take your muscles to the point where tension is dissipated through most of those fibers and they've had long enough to actually be trained by that, that, those combination of variables. Right. So let's take this then into some of the specific methods which you have mentioned sure. already. You've mentioned drop sets, you've mentioned extended sets, things like that. I mm-hmm. mean, the drop set is what immediately comes to mind. I feel like that's, that's where so many people start. You, you load the bar up, you, you put the tens on, and you, you strip them off as you go and try your drop set. So, I mean, maybe you can just use that as like a proxy for some of the other methods because we probably don't have time to get into a ton of different ones. Let's say that someone is kind of using RPE as their gauge for failure, like proximity to failure. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. They want to do straight straight sets and reps. They're doing 10 reps, 12 reps, 15 reps, whatever it may be. They're progressively increasing volume throughout the, like maybe like say a four to six week phase versus a phase where they're going to employ drop sets as a way to get closer to failure. What do we know about comparison and hypertrophy for those types of protocols? What do we know about that? How, like what, what has been done in the, in the research from that standpoint? Are people wasting their time even trying to mess around with drop sets when it comes to hypertrophy? No, I, I think drop sets and, and rest pause, sometimes called myo reps, but not really directly studied. These all fit nicely into a category of potential time-saving ways of, when a, of training that can be just as effective as traditional training when done with appropriate exercise selection. Probably the, the caveat that I put there. So study by Ozaki that came out, I think, in, in 2018. I don't have it directly in front of me, but I want to say they compared doing just sets of 80% of 1RM, and I want to say these were curls, to then doing sets of 80% of 1RM and dropping to 30% of 1RM. I, I think it was three sets to failure at 80% of 1RM with three-minute three rest periods, and then the other group did 80% to failure, and then they did like three drops afterwards. So mm-hmm. I want to say it was something like 60, 40, and 20, maybe, it, it, not exactly the, the, the point, or maybe it's four drops. But you're comparing three sets to failure with a heavy load mm-hmm. compared to one set of failure and four drops. And ultimately, they performed a similar amount of volume, I think volume load. And if I recall correctly, there was a similar amount of hype, or there was a non-significant difference in hypertrophy. Yeah. So... When we see that they did a similar amount of volume and both groups were training to failure, we can kind of go all the way back to, well, what are the variables that matter? It's, are you close to failure? And then are you doing not too heavy, not too light? And is it a sufficient amount of volume? So when those two things were compared, we got to the same place. However, if you're resting three minutes between sets and doing three sets of 80% of 1RM, that's going to take you 11 minutes, right? But if you run the rack and you go right from your 80% of 1RM on curls, right? You do your set of 6 to 10. And then you, you go down to, like, let's say you grab 40s, right? For the Americans. Or, mm-hmm. or for 18 kilos, okay? Mm-hmm. And then you drop immediately down to 12 kilos or, the, or like the 27.5s, right? And you go to failure. And then you drop down to 20s. And then you drop down to 10s. And then you just move your arms, right? Yeah. Um, what we would understand from the study conceptually is that if that result, if you were pushing it as hard as you could in both examples, and they resulted in a similar roughly amount of volume, that you would probably get similar outcomes. <laughs> but you could leave the gym in two and a half minutes doing the drop sets. So that's cool. Now, this kind of makes sense. It's cool if you keep it in isolation. But when we start to compare it to the rest period data, now you start scratching your head. We've got all these studies on full resistance training programs in many cases, bench, squat, deadlifts, all that stuff, right? Typically not deadlift, but uh, like rows, lap pull downs, curls, push downs, chest press. One group rests 30 seconds, the other one group rests three minutes, et cetera. And you see a pretty consistent pattern where the group resting for a shorter period is not getting as much hypertrophy. Now, you go, hold on, like, but they did the same amount of work and they rested less and they got the same hypertrophy. What's going on here? 
Well, a lot of the times what happens in these rest period studies is that they're not able to get the same volume. So there's other studies where they then add a set and it rescues yeah. that hypertrophy, huh. but not in every single case. And then you start to think, it, okay, well, what's the exercise being used here? And on most of the drop set studies, we're looking at single joint exercises. And in many of the short-term rest period studies versus long-term rest period studies, it's a combination. It's, it's a training session, not like, let's yeah. just look at the arms. Yeah. And then we take that back to what we talked about earlier of discomfort versus actual proximity to failure, cardiovascular fatigue, and really what is getting in the way of you being able to do the work at a high tension level. And it's probably not something going on locally in the muscle. It's the global perception of fatigue and cardiometabolic fatigue that might even be getting at the point where it's actually driving some central fatigue that's actually inhibiting your ability to recruit muscle fiber. That's more speculative. But mm -hmm. the point is, it's really freaking hard to rest 30 seconds and do a bunch of drop sets on squats or, or rest <laughs> pause on squats. And yeah. you can do it on arms because it's just, you get a sick pump. But if you do it on squats, you go throw up, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many other variables that will limit your ability to get close to failure. Exactly. And like, are you choosing squats because you want quad hypertrophy? Like, what's the reason for choosing squats? Like, huh. that, that matters too. Last week's guest, when at that time of this recording, Tom Shepard talked about this in exercise selection of like, all right, if you are going for a certain stimulus in a certain muscle group, there's certainly some exercises that makes zero sense for certain rep ranges and others that make more sense. So that comes into the picture with this when we're talking about this. So now how about things like extended studies? So yeah. now this is where things get the rest pause. Yeah, re yeah, rest pause. Like, yeah, my bio reps is the new is that the newer term for extended rest pause sets? Or um, I, I would say that we should give some credit to Berge <laughs> Fagerly. He kind of developed this, and it's essentially a rest pause set where you don't necessarily go to failure. You get okay. to the point where the bar or the implant is slowing down, and then you only rest enough to recover the ability to do a few more reps, and you get these clusters in a fatigued state while using a reasonably high load to hopefully still be in a high state of muscle recruitment and activation. Now, is that different than, I mean, rest pause can be sliced so many different ways. In the research, we define it, but that doesn't mean that colloquially people do it that way. It's just, you can't study something unless you have <laughs> consistency and terminology, right? So yeah. in the research, yeah. rest pause typically means that you go to failure, take a brief break and go to failure again. But in practice, that's sometimes people do or don't go to failure. And when you don't go to failure, in the research, we typically call that a cluster set and, and the, or a rest redistribution set. <laughs> yep. So a rest pause set is failure. A cluster set is when the comparative traditional training that you're matching it to for your study, you don't have the match total amount of work. So the cluster set might take longer, right? So it's actually the opposite of what we're talking about where this is being a time-saving technique. The cluster set, you're trying to optimize performance by mm -hmm. manipulating your rest interval so that the bar speed doesn't slow down, right? Yep, yep. A rest redistribution set is saying, that's cool, but I don't want this to take any longer. Maybe I'm in an S&C setting, I've only got an hour with these people, but we're in a power phase, but I want to preserve the phase where we did more hypertrophy training. So I want to get a fair amount of work, but I want all the work we to get, the work we get to be at the highest velocity possible. So instead of doing, say, three by 10, with three minutes of rest between, I'm going to do 10 by three 
with a sufficient amount of rest to get to the same total amount of rest. While the cluster set, you would just rest until you're ready, right? Okay. Yeah. So the difference between each one of these is that you're going to get a complete slowdown to failure with a rest pause. You're going to preserve as much velocity as possible with a cluster set. And then you're going to preserve as much velocity as possible with the rest redistribution set without making it longer than a traditional set, rest, set, rest approach would to resistance training. Those are our working definitions of the research, but people do different shit all the time in practice. Right. Well, I just remember, I mean, outside of just traditional clusters, um, I can't remember the specific name of, but basically the method was you had a rep goal. So let's say we're doing hammer, hammer row, right? And we want to get 20 reps. You start with a weight that you're going to get 12 with. You think you're going to get 12. You You get to 12. I mean, if you get 13, cool. You just go to failure. And then you just rest pause that until you get to 20 total reps. So I take 30 seconds of rest after my 12, hit as many as I can. Maybe I got five and then I rest and I just keep breathing squats. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that fall under rest pause, but I mean, again, within that, like I could get 30, I could get 14, but that's not the only way to do it. So sometimes... And if you were to make those quote-unquote myo reps, you might just decide to attach a repetitions in reserve to each one of those. Mm-hmm. So you get as many reps as you can, but stop at a one or two RIR in the first set, your activation set. And then after that, you, just, you also stop at a one to two RIR. And then maybe you take the last one to failure if you've got a day off the next day. So there's a lot of different ways to apply this, but ultimately, mm-hmm. let's, we don't need a study that compares each one of these crazy iterations because that would never end and (laughs) it's not useful. What Mm -hmm. we want to do with research, and this is a big shout out to one of my main mentors, Dr. Mike Zerdos, who's an excellent science communicator and helps people understand what to do with applied research. Applied research is not actually meant to be applied directly on like Tuesday. Like, okay, that's the protocol I'm going to do. Rather, you apply the concept and you integrate it into the unique situation you're going to use as a practitioner. It's translational. It still has to be translated. So I think that's why translational research, which is another term for applied research, is a little more intuitive to most people because it implies that you're translating it, not just directly applying it. So right. we make so many concessions with research. And Dr. Zerdos famously said to me like, hey, yeah, for my, my PhD dissertation, I compared two different forms of DUP, hypertrophy power strength or hypertrophy strength power. And hypertrophy power strength performed better, but it might be the second worst version of DUP that exists because we only <laughs> compared two things. Right. So it's a fool's errand to try to compare every iteration. What we really want to do is understand the concept. And the concept goes all the way back to what I said previously, which is that, hey, we need to get close to failure. And with some caveats, it's heavy enough, maybe it doesn't matter, blah, 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 blah. And it actually has to be muscular failures. It can't go too light. It can't be too metabolically fatiguing. So, okay, we do high reps with single joint movements, but maybe cables, but not with legs kind of thing, unless you really just want to be a masochist. And then we also need a a sufficient amount of work. So anytime you look at one of these advanced techniques and it satisfies those two principles, you're going to see similar or greater hypertrophy if it wasn't well-matched in that group. And anytime you don't, that's when you see problems. So when you look at the studies on rest intervals and manipulating rest intervals, you typically see that when you're doing multi-joint movements and someone rests for a shorter period of time, unless they make up the volume by doing more. And sometimes even when they do, inferior hypertrophy. 
when you do back-to-back same muscle group supersets, things don't look so hot. But when you do something like antagonist paired sets, like a bench than a row, rather than the former example of a bench than a fly, now you're actually able to generate high tensions and you're not coming into it with basically a short rest interval, right? right? So that's what keeps happening. So if we can reach true muscular failure rather than cardiometabolic fatigue and discomfort masking failure and hindering volume, then things seem to go well. So we could take that rubric and go, okay, which one of these quote-unquote advanced techniques makes sense? And then, okay, even another level further, which one of them makes sense for what exercises? And things like lateral raises, calves, maybe even leg extensions if you're not someone who gets a massive intense burning pump from it. Um, Isolation movements generally, small muscle groups generally, non-free weights, and things that aren't requiring you to really be focused technically and mentally fatigued, nor do they require you to use a ton of musculature and generate a lot of discomfort and cardiovascular fatigue, are good vehicles to where you can keep achieving muscular failure with a, with a restricted rest interval, right? And when you don't want to do it, that's when you need to think about other time-saving techniques, such as antagonist paired sets, like a bench in a row, and then you rest after both because one is actively resting while the other one is being trained. So you're not actually impeding one another. Or training a single joint movement that's uninvolved in an exercise in the rest interval from the main one. So you're doing, uh, you know, squats, and you might do some tricep pushdowns, right? Sure. Yeah. So that's kind of the, like, the reason why it's not useful to stack up all of the data on rest pause or, or all these, because you're going to find some outcome if you were to meta-analyze it all, but you would need to be really careful with what your moderator analyses were and what your inclusion and exclusion criteria were in that meta-analysis to not just have that be completely artifacts of when those two protocols violated what I said earlier, and one group was actually closer to failure or actually did more volume than the other, or was yeah. impeded or, or more fatigued, right? Right. Absolutely. That's a great way to kind of wrap things up. <laughs> as far as practical application, where do we go from here? I do have one, one more question, if you've got some time, about that I'm just curious on. Yeah. So man. you mentioned earlier that you did interviews with uh, athletes, bodybuilders, powerlifters, Hey, what are you doing? Like, what do you feel works? And then you would take and run, take that and run with it. Can you think of one thing that surprised you with that? As far as like, this is so like, maybe like out there or off the wall, right? This has nothing to it or, and then you maybe went back and did some research or you did a trial with it and you found something you didn't expect. If something comes to mind, what's something that surprised you? where you did not expect through that process. Yeah, I had the unique opportunity to collaborate with Dr. Pack, that we call him affectionately, ah, yeah. Andrew Lackis Korakakis. And he did a bunch of interviews with high-level powerlifting coaches and athletes and asked them their thoughts on the minimum effective training dose. And in many cases, athletes wanted to try it but were afraid to do so because they weren't sure it would be enough to make progress. And... I think that's really interesting. And essentially what he then did was he did applied translational research, taking powerlifters and doing literally just like six singles a week, working up to a max like nine or 9.5 RPE squat twice, bench three times and deadlift once per week and then leaving the gym. 
Hmm. So we're talking about 45 minutes of training period. And just cause they have to warm up and they're reasonably strong. I'm just studying on power lifters hmm. and compared that to a group that did the same thing, but then did like two sets of three at 80% of that for each one of those back offsets. And then looked at, okay, how did that compare to what coaches expect to be good gains versus uh, not so good gains and actually looking at outcomes in open powerlifting and finding that the group that did the back offsets actually didn't just make minimal gains. They made better than what powerlifting coaches considered were good gains, at least in the short-term study. So this is one of those instances where the willingness of us to try things, and this is one of the weaknesses of anecdotes, is anecdotes are accurate if they've been accurately observed, right? Take high-level coaches, got spreadsheets, and they're, they're paying attention. You got the videos. It's, yeah. it's all real. Um, but you can only observe what you try. And if a lot of people are trying high-volume programs, balls to the wall, they're going after it, and they've never tried a minimum effective dose, it's very challenging for us to know how effective it could be. And mm-hmm. It's not necessarily optimal, but it might be the optimal choice in some cases if you were dealing with pain, if you just had another child, but you actually (laughs) still want to make the best gains you can in this point in your athletic career while having a little more work-life balance or while allowing a uh, a certain muscle group or or joint injury to recover and figuring out what's the least amount I can do to not backslide there or maybe even make some marginal gains or maybe there's a global pandemic and you only have the ability to do a little bit. So, okay, how can I do that? So that, it was a really cool experience. I'm really grateful I got to collaborate. That was all Dr. Pack's PhD. So I don't yeah. pretend I had a major contribution to it, but I was one of the co-authors on that paper. And I thought sure. it's just a really cool example of how, if you don't test something, you can't really say much about it. Right. And so I just want to make sure I understand it was the outcome strength that they were looking at. Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Eric, thank, I want to thank you so much for your time today. All ton of great information. So before we hop off, I do want to highlight, or you have a, do you have a new course coming out through 3D Muscle Journey? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, there, yeah. There was two things that I thought would be really cool just to direct people towards a third. This yeah. made them hungry. If I whetted your appetite. Your palate has been. <laughs> yes. If I have been the appetizer, the hors d'oeuvre to your, yeah. to your main bodybuilding dinner. <laughs> Let that dinner be bodybuilding program design at the 3dmjvault.com. That is where we have practitioner and athlete focused courses, 3D muscle journey. And bodybuilding program design is one that takes all of these concepts and goes, okay, then what should you do in the gym? And how do you individualize it and customize it? And it's very practical. And it's a system for individualizing your specific needs and incorporating a lot of these interdependent concepts. Now, if the Part of the hors d'oeuvre, the specific flavor that you liked more, was understanding how research fits into this picture that I would encourage you to, and you already did, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Mass Research Review, that's our bread and butter. We do it every mm-hmm. month, and it's a lot of fun, and we'd love to have you know anybody consider it. You don't even necessarily have to subscribe. Check out massresearchreview.com. Check out our YouTube channel. We do office hours every week where two of us get on our, our YouTube channel live and answer questions and just chat for an hour. And we bump that to our podcast feed. So if you want to do it live, jump on YouTube with us. If you want to listen in retrospect on all podcast platforms, check out uh, Mass Office Hours. And if you really want to get nerdy with us and read or watch videos or listen to our audio replays or all the things that we do, I would be honored if someone would subscribe and you will help me pay my mortgage. Yes. Well, I also then, I mean, I also have to shout out the podcast. 
Iron oh, Culture Podcast. Like, I mean, that's another great way to to get just more education. I mean, if you're again, your palate has been wetted for hearing more of Eric's voice. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Do you appreciate you my, my, my my baritone rambling monologues? Then that's the spot. Oh, also for Omar. Omar's the really the. Yeah. I just play the straight man. Omar's the the juice in that podcast <laughs> for sure. Um, and then I also like don't you did mention this too. You you are an author. You've got books. You, you actually are a human kinetics published author. I've got the I've got the essentials of personal training right behind me here. Hey. Eric co-authored the nutrition chapter with Brian Brian Saint Pierre. Yes, yep. so that you was could. That a uh, lot of fun. Yes, and so you could check him out there. And then, for anyone who doesn't know, what are the books you have out right now? Other books? Yeah, I also wrote. Uh, I think is it Rutledge? There's a advanced personal training. I wrote yep. the, the kind of. The, I'm pitching your competitor. I apologize. That's a, um, and this is unassociated. This is um, these views are not held by. <laughs> these are not associated with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I wrote the like the training principles chapter there. But then my personal books that I co-authored with Andrea Valdez and Andy Morgan were on our second edition. I'm working on the third. That's the Muscle and Strength Pyramids. Those are a paired set of books, nutrition training, where I take all of the stuff, including my practical experience, coaching, and all the research and update it every... Basically, when I get annoyed with how I positioned it three years ago and the research has changed. Yeah. Once I can no longer be like, that's too wrong. I can't let it go anymore. I rewrite it. Which is... which is basically when it actually comes out, right? Yeah. You exactly. spent two years writing the dang thing. And then once it's actually on show, I was like, oh, man. Yeah, it can only make it three or out. four years. Because yeah. I take concepts and I integrate them to go back mm-hmm. to our, our, our discussion. Yes. But anyway, so yeah, the second edition of Muscle and Strength Pyramids, you can go to muscleandstrengthpyramids.com or you can go to Amazon and you can get physical or digital books and learn everything that I would take all these concepts and put them into specific applied decision-making trees and, and a priority system that makes sense of all the information that's yeah. flooding the internet right now. So you can yeah. actually make gains. Make gains. And if you really want to do the science, you may go to New Zealand. I mean, I also have to ask, yeah. yes, sir. Are you, are, did you go to New Zealand, a Lord of the Rings fan? 100%. I oh. had read the book six times already. And the number of times I've been to Hobbiton, Woo. that is like four times. It's, that's like top of the bucket list for me. It, Tell me, ah, you can. I got to get out there. Walk the ground that Isildur <laughs> found, and yes, tread in the footsteps of the Maya, which, yeah. which which helped us defeat. Not even I'm not even talking Sauron, but I'm yeah. talking Morgoth. I'm talking Morgoth. You know, the, yeah, the OG danger. That's right. Um, and now everyone's like, oh my, okay, we're going off the rails here. But Eric, yeah, they're not man, listening anymore. Eric, man, thank you so much for your time. And yes, I will hopefully speak to you in the future. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Corey. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.